Amen. Thank you, Alyssa and Hannah. Waiting here for you. Isn't it true that so much of our life is, is spent waiting? Waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Waiting for Christ to return in great glory one day and to do away forever with sin. Oh, what a day. And oh, how we wait eagerly for that day. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, if you weren't able to be with us for worship, we started a three-week series here on prayer. We looked first at Daniel, this week we'll look at Paul, and next week we'll look to Jesus and see three different snapshots of prayer. And last week, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, had a word for us that I think is, is relevant as we consider prayer. In Isaiah 64, do you remember this? We, we read, there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. Now this week, uh, I was reflecting on that verse from Isaiah and thinking about prayer in preparation for the message, and I was reminded of a story. It's kind of an embarrassing story, but it's a, a story that I believe relates to exactly what Paul is praying for this church at Ephesus uh, in the Word of God this morning. So a couple of years ago, I had been given a new responsibility in my job, and as part of this responsibility, what I needed to do was learn how to drive a trailer. Now, I'm a city boy, grew up in the city. It was a farm town, but I grew up in the city. So I'd never before really experienced what it was like to hook up a trailer, let alone drive a truck and haul this thing around. And of course, as things would, would play out, I was given a week to learn how to drive this trailer. So, uh, as any good God-fearing man would do, I waited till all my colleagues were gone for the day, late at night, and I would pull the truck up and take 20 minutes to hook the hitch up and drive circles around the parking lot and practice. And so, for a week, I did this, and then the, the fateful day came, and, and somehow, by God's grace, I passed that trailer exam. Well, uh, there was no wasting of time. As soon as I got this uh, certification, I could drive the trailer I had to haul up a John Deere Gator, you know, those little four-wheel drive vehicles, and I was going to pull a two-row planter around behind this, and it was just at the end of harvest season, so we were going to go into these fields and do some testing. And we were going down to New Berlin, uh, Illinois. It's just outside of Springfield, and so we had kind of set up our operation there. We had taken the, the trailer off. I made my maiden voyage without incident, without... I was very proud of that, and, uh, and so we got into the field, and, and if you've ever been on the farm, this is how the farm stories always go, uh, we get out in the field with this John Deere gator, and, and we're out in the farthest corner of this field, as far away from the shed as you could get, and, and sure enough, th there's this odor that, that begins to kind of grab hold of, of my nose, and I'm like, mm, this doesn't smell good, it kind of smells like rubber, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on here, maybe it's the tires, I thought, you know, we were in a lot of heavy corn residue, I thought maybe the tires were having trouble. Well, good engineer that I am, we just pressed on, right? We kept going. Suddenly, the smell was met with a sound. Pop! And there was shrapnel from the rubber transmission belt that went flying in every which way direction. And of course, now I have this John Deere Gator and a heavily weighted two-row planter stuck at the farthest end of the field. Classic farm story, right? And so what do we do? Well, we go, we get the farmer, we get an old tractor, we haul this thing in. But here's where the trailer comes in. Now we've got to take this lame mule broke down in the field and get her to a John Deere dealership and get her running again. So uh, I go and I think uh, with some snickering got 
Uh, I think I sent actually my colleague and the farmer away to do something else while I got the trailer backed up. I thought I had it hooked up nice and good. We pushed the John Deere gator, gator up on the trailer. Off we go to the John Deere dealership. And so uh, we arrive at the John Deere dealer, and of course, uh, the mule's lame, right? So we've got to find a, a deck where I can back the trailer up and then just push this thing right off onto the platform so they can do the repair work. So uh, again, I have an audience, my colleague and a couple mechanics now watching me take 20 minutes to back into this, this spot, but we, we got her done. It, it was backed up, we pushed it off, and I kind of, whew, you know, I breathed this sigh of relief. Now what I didn't take into account was that in having to back that trailer down, right, there's a little bit of a height difference between where the trailer is and the truck is, and so the, the truck's kind of sitting like this and the trailer's sitting like this. Now if you've ever done a hitch, you know where this story's going, right? because that hitch was not connected. But I didn't discover it until I put her in drive, all proud of myself, and go to take off with confidence, and guess what happened? The truck took off, sure, sure enough, the trailer did not, and the trailer, koosh, and the chains, chuff, you know, and I felt this jerk, and the mechanics, you know, <laughs> kind of sitting back or, or doing one of these numbers. Now, what's the point of that story, and how does it connect to prayer? You see, oftentimes, our lives are very much like that hitch. We think they're connected. We think they're over top of the grace and power of God. We think by faith they're connected to what God has done in Christ. And it's only when there's a stress, maybe it's an environmental thing, maybe it's God revealing sin in our hearts, but there's, there's a change that takes place. And that change then reveals that the hitch of faith is not connected to the power and work of Christ. And so this morning, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, prays. He, he prays that, that the hitch of faith would be united and that through prayer, our faith would be expressed and manifest to give us eyes that see. So let's consider this passage together. If you have your Bibles, just stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Father, we do wait upon you. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, 
What a Savior. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that by faith we may lay hold of this great calling which you have entrusted to us, the inheritance which is ours in Christ, and even more so, Father, to the power, power that raised Christ from the dead, and the power that lives in us through your Spirit. O oh Lord, awaken us that our lives might be lives of faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul, here this morning, is the focus of our attention as we consider a people of prayer. And last week with Daniel, we looked at this prayer cycle. Do you remember this? Where there's the, the person of God, who God is. And then in Daniel chapter 5, literally the hand of God is visibly evident in transitioning one kingdom to another. And as Daniel's confronted with the reality of God's sovereign work in his world, he looks inward and he, he sees the, the sin and rebellion of Israel against her God and, and how God's righteous judgment, but yet his mercy had been promised in the scriptures. And so he repents and he, he cries out for God's mercy. And, and as he sees the, the character of God that, that to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, but to you, righteousness, and to us, O Lord, be, belongs open shame, but to you, mercy and forgiveness. He sees this covenant character of God and that's what he, he grabs hold of by faith in prayer. And, and he cries out to God, be glorified in the restoration of your people. Oh, Father, would you make your name great again in your city, the city that bears your name in Jerusalem. And so the, the cycle of prayer is, is complete. And this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, as we consider Paul's prayer, Paul's concerned, this church at Ephesus, it, it's a healthy church. This isn't like the group at Corinth that is constantly going about saying, we've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit more than you, and, and it's because I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Peter, and I'm with Paul. No, that's, that's not the situation. Paul spent three years with this group. He dearly loved them. He even diverts one of his missionary journeys to be with these leaders from Ephesus one last time before he marches to Jerusalem and ultimately is imprisoned and will lose his life. This is a healthy, solid church. And we see that in the beginning of verse 15. He says, I've, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Uh, this is a group that, that's strong. And yet Paul, Paul through the Spirit of God and in the wisdom of God, sees a, a problem, a problem that's going to break this cycle of worship that God has established. And this problem, it, it is a dullness of vision you see, Paul says, I, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. But later on, we'll read in the book of Revelation, as Jesus walks among the churches, what charge does he levy against the church in Ephesus? Do you remember? You've left your first love. You see, this was a church that began well. We see it here in Ephesians chapter 1. They, they were faithful they loved one another deeply. They were a powerful testimony to Christ in the world. And yet somewhere along the way, we aren't told exactly where or how, that love grew cold. This passion, this zeal for Christ started to fade. And we see here, Paul, Paul sees it coming. And in his heart for this church, he prays. He prays that God would, would stop the blindness. Now, I, I have with me, I stopped at the gas station this morning, this this little brown bag. Do, do you know what this little brown bag is? 
Yeah, this is M&M's, right? So I, I have here a wonderful visual illustration, a bag of M&M's. Now all of you know what this is. But as soon as I pull this out, all of you have an experiential knowledge of the sweet, melt-in-your-mouth deliciousness, leave a rainbow-in-your-hand goodness of these little treats. And how you can be in the depths of despair in just one handful calms all your ills. You can be in, in great agony and anguish, needing the strength to go on, and one little handful does the trick. You see, you know, not just head knowledge, not just, yeah, I know what's in that, you know the power of M&Ms. Okay, we're taking this a little far, but, but Paul here in verse 17 is not after a demonic knowledge. You see, there's a knowledge that the demons have of the truths of the gospel. You believe that God is one, James would write? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So what's the difference? What's the difference between a demonic knowledge and a true M&M experiential taste and see that the Lord is good knowledge? It's a heart connection by faith to the person and power of of God. And notice here that Paul, in thinking about their pursuit of the will of God, now wants for them to have an experiential knowledge of God, a heart connection to Him by faith. One writer, in describing this problem of spiritual heart vision, of the, the dullness that can come upon our hearts, said this, he said, we live in a world that is for the most part spiritually tone deaf, where all the goods are in the store window, digitized or reduced to a flat screen. If you get an Amazon.prime, this is my little ad lib, if you get an Amazon Prime subscription, you can get it shipped for free. And so prayer is a struggle. Today, most of us do not see our restless longing as pushing us toward the infinite. We've trivialized and tamed our longing. Instead of longing for the transcendent, we anesthetize and distract ourselves by focusing our desires on the good life, on sex, on money, on success, and on whatever else we think everybody has. That's a, that's a great depiction of our world and a great depiction of the cultural currents that keep us from going to God in prayer. Here's a simpler uh, form, a poem that I found enlightening. "'Tis not enough to bend the knee in words of prayer to say, the heart must with the lips agree, or else we do not pray. I don't know about for you, but oftentimes I can enter into the prayer closet in the wee hours of the morning, and somewhere in the middle of it all, realize that my heart and my lips are detached, that they're going in different directions. Do you ever find this? You see, this is the, the issue that Paul is trying to address, that, that Paul here, in both modeling prayer, but also showing us how to pray, is confronting. So here's the question for you this morning. Where do you most need God's power in your life? What is it in your life today where by faith you need to connect to the power of God in prayer? Is it to break the power of canceled sin? Perhaps this morning you need God to destroy anger and bitterness in your heart. Maybe it's, it's time for God to uproot the deception 
in the way that you go about your life. Maybe it's time to end hypocrisy and living one way in front of this group of people and another way in front of that group of people. Maybe God wants to destroy and crush the greed in your heart, a perpetual longing for more that's never satisfied. Maybe God this morning wants to slaughter selfishness, a life where you are solely on the throne. Maybe he wants to pierce your pride this morning that you might humble yourself under his mighty hand. You see, for God to break the power of canceled sin, we need his grace, we need his power. Perhaps this morning your challenge is perseverance. There's great obstacles, there's that stress that has happened, that change in orientation, a circumstance, a situation. Maybe it's cancer or or physical illness. Maybe it's the loss of a job. There could be relationship conflicts family trouble. Whatever the case might be, God calls us to persevere in the face of these obstacles. And yet, through prayer, he gives us access. Access to to perspective, access to his purpose, and access to his power. Lastly, maybe you desire to boldly serve as an ambassador for Christ. Maybe you see around you hurting broken people whose whose lives are longing for something that this world seems to never provide and and never satisfies. And you know that 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 longing can only be met in Jesus Christ. And yet you look and you say, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to, to bring about a transformation in this person's life. We need God's power And so Paul, in in the face of these kinds of concerns, in the the face of a heart that that has begun to slip away from the power of God, from a, a union with Christ by faith, he prays, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten the eyes of our hearts in verse 18. So this morning, we're going to find three aspects, three appeals that Paul makes And these three appeals, they they address three different aspects, three different ways in which the heart can unite to Christ by faith. Let's look at the first one together. Here we see Paul inviting us to pray for a heart connection to our hope in Christ. Pray for a heart connection to our hope in Christ. Oftentimes, it's either sin or or suffering that are the main reasons that that the truck gets disoriented, and now we see our faith begin to to be found not rooted and and grounded in Christ. And and what sin does, it blinds us, Peter tells us in his second epistle. It, It blinds us to the work of God. It makes us nearsighted. So that we don't recall, we don't embrace experientially like the M&Ms. We don't, we don't know that our past sins have been forgiven. And so this, this blindness, it clouds our vision. It keeps us from laying hold of our, our calling in Christ. But suffering does it as well. You see, Satan loves to use the pain and sorrow, the deep hurts of our lives. And, and you know what he does? He, he takes those and, and he wants to build an accusation against God. See, He's not really good. See God's sovereign orchestration of your world? It's not sweet, it's bitter. Is that what you want? See, this is how Satan comes to us. And this is how then we begin to to lose sight of who God is 
we begin to lose sight of his, his love and how he cares for us. And so here, Paul, in, in the first element of this prayer, says we need to lay hold of, of the hope of our calling. Now, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, this calling, it, it's laid out in, in great detail. Notice, if you just look back at the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1, that this calling, it's rooted in the predestined, predetermined plan of God. Now now imagine this, God as triune person, Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternity past, is in perfect fellowship, perfect communion. And there he develops a plan that he's going to create a world, and he's going to create man in his image in that world. And he wants to so display the love and fellowship that the triune God alone has, this glory that only God has, this holiness, this otherness, that as Trinitarian God, he holds with himself. He wants to make that known. He wants to make that manifest through us. What an amazing plan. So that all the days of your life, all that God has purposed for you, is safe, it's secure. That's what we see here in these first 14 verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, this is what God has decreed, that in Christ, connected to him by faith, we can be declared holy and blameless. Notice in love, it says in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. We're, we're part of God's family, not because of what we do, but because of what God has accomplished in Christ. This is the gospel, friends. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. That's coming up here in Paul's prayer having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see the repeated theme, the repeated emphasis that that Paul is making? And so it's no accident that in verse 15 he says, for this reason, on the basis of this predetermined plan, promises of God that are to be fulfilled in us and through us, Paul makes his appeal. The surety of Christ's work on our behalf determines our destiny, not our past. And so, six times in this section, in him is spoken, speaking of Christ. And five times, in Christ, is the emphasis. Do you catch Paul's heart? He wants us to see that our union with Christ by faith is the key. It is the backbone to this prayer and even to the answer to this prayer. But, but, the challenge is this. We need endurance. You see, I made several trips with that hitch and didn't even realize it wasn't connected correctly. And so oftentimes in life, we can be going along, everything seems fine, and it's only when that dislodging takes place that we realize, oh no, things aren't what I thought they were. And so we need perseverance. But listen to how the gospel, the hope of our calling that God has in Christ, 
a destiny for us. Listen to how that helps us in perseverance and connects us to hope. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful? Thankful that our sin and rebellion would break our peace with God, and yet through Christ, God has offered us a sure and lasting peace with God. But he goes on, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, a gift that we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. We've got access by faith into this grace. Do you see the hitch connected here? And we rejoice in, here's our word, the hope of the glory of God. So how does this hope bear out in a life? What is it that God does? What is the factory where God produces this kind of hope? Verses 3 through 5 tell us, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you remember that shame word from last week in Daniel chapter 9? To us, open shame, but to you, righteousness. To us, open shame, but to you, mercy and forgiveness, God. Here, hope does not put us to shame. And you see, hope takes us beyond what we see. It takes us beyond that circumstance, that situation. Whether it's our battle with indwelling sin, whether it's our confrontation with physical suffering and pain in our lives, whether it's, it's a burning desire to see people we love and deeply care about come to know and worship the true God through Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, Paul says there's a hope, a hope rooted and anchored in Christ. And I pray that the eyes of your heart would lay hold of that hope in light of whatever circumstance and that you might persevere in that hope. I think of uh, the journey that we walked in considering going to Southern Seminary to pursue a Ph.D., after much prayer and meeting with the elders of our church, we felt the, the Lord calling our family to pack up and move to Louisville, Kentucky and pursue a Ph.D. My heart's desire is to teach at a Bible school and pastor a small church. And so the Ph.D. was kind of a necessary next step in that, that journey. And yet, as, as uh, we were getting ready for this, the process is a year-long application. You submit writing samples and they kind of look and say, can you actually write effectively? And then based on that, they say, all right, we're going to invite you for some exams. And so six months later, after passing that initial hurdle, I, I was invited to come and take exams, exams in the original languages and a writing. And so for six months, I began to prepare. But you know, the Lord had a different plan. Because during that six months, a friend of mine, a pastor of another church, called me and he said, Matt, uh, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Can you come and can you fill the pulpit for me while I'm gone. I said, absolutely, I will. And so my exams had been set in February, but in December and January, I filled the pulpit for my friend. And there were times in that where I, I was on the verge of needing to call the seminary and say, listen, I'm going to have to postpone exams. I'm going to have to put this off because I don't have time working a job and uh, preaching each week and, and teaching and shepherding this flock to prepare adequately for these these tests. And yet in God's kindness, right at the last minute, uh, literally in the, it, with two weeks to go before exams, he restored Gary and he was able to start preaching again. 
And I was faced with a choice. Would, would I look at this circumstance and say, this is hopeless, this is futile, I don't feel like I'm adequately prepared to take these tests and to, to walk this road. But I didn't feel that way. I felt like the Lord had, had orchestrated this to teach me to trust Him and not my preparation. You see, for most of my life, I was, I was willing to pay the price to perhaps even sin and, and discard faithfulness in other areas to prepare, 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 and try and earn it on my own. And God wanted me to learn a very powerful lesson through this experience, that He is a God who fights for us, and that if we trust Him, if our hope is in Him and in His calling, He'll provide. So I went and, and I took those exams in February. And the way my mind works, uh, I, it was a two-hour time test. I, I don't do well in these two-hour time tests. It's kind of like I feel like a dog with a shock collar, and uh, you know they're just bearing down on me, and, and every time we get down to the last 30 minutes, it's just, whew, hold on for dear life. But I, I got through it. I, I turned in my exam. I breathed a sigh of relief, but this, is, this has kind of been historically true for me. As I walked through the parking lot afterward, I had known in this Greek translation section that this passage seemed eerily familiar, but I couldn't quite in my mental Rolodex figure out where it was from. But in the parking lot, it hit me. Oh, this is in the Didache and on the section on teaching on baptism, and I realized that I had mistranslated about half of it because my vocabulary was just a little bit fuzzy. And so, kind of having this realization, I got back to my book bag in the, in the room, and I pulled out my copy of the Didache, and sure enough, I saw all the mistakes that I had made in that translation. And guess what? My heart sank, right? Hope was starting to fade. But my wife and my family, they rallied around me. They said, Matt, if God wants this for us, he'll provide. Just trust him. You did the best that you could. So we prayed and we waited. You had to wait a couple of months for the results of these exams to come back. And so one day, my wife calls me at work. Uh, actually, she didn't call me. She sent me, the, you know, modern technology. She took a picture of the envelope, uh, right, and said, might want to come home early today. Um, and, and my response was, I'm not sure if I want to come home early today. Uh, but we, we gathered around, and we said, you know what, Lord, if, if this is what you want for us, just show us. And we opened that letter, and, and to my shock and amazement, we had been accepted, yeah, now the interesting and amazing thing is the Lord had a different plan still because he's still teaching us. We're still waiting on him for the fulfillment of that. But I share that story to, to share, A, how, easily it is to, how easy it is for our, our hope to get disconnected from Christ, but B, how trustworthy our God is, even when the results, when what we see doesn't line up with what we think is best. And that's what Paul here is calling us to do, to pray that we might know, not just know intellectually, but know with our hearts, connect by faith to this amazing hope of our calling in Christ. Number two, though, he says, pray for a heart connection to our glorious inheritance in Christ. You see, he wants us to see that our prosperity, our future, is not on the basis of performance, but on the basis of God's predestined promise plan. Now, that's radically different than the world, isn't it? Uh, from the time we're little, if we get good grades, we get into good schools. If we go to good schools, we get good grades in good schools, we get a good job. And if we get a good job, we'll get good money. And if we get good money and we invest it, we'll have a good 
life. That's kind of the American dream, the American way, just laid out. But that's performance, 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 right? God here says, may the eyes of your heart embrace something radically different. That rather than performance, it's the person of my son. Rather than what you have done to earn or merit my favor, it's not on anything that you've done. Even, Titus 3 says, works done in righteousness. No, it is wholly and solely a work of God. After all, Ephesians 2 here says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive. What an amazing truth. You see, the security of our destiny, it's rooted in our identity as adopted children. That's what Paul laid out earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says the same thing, but he uses a little bit different words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now think about this. An inheritance that is imperishable. This isn't like the food that you kind of have stashed away in the pantry and suddenly you realize, whoa, it's four years old, I better get rid of that. Or if you're cheap like me, you're like, eh, how bad can it be? This inheritance, it doesn't have an expiration date. It's imperishable, but it's also undefiled. And you know how this goes. You, you take these nice, shiny, new things. You can get a new couch, and all it takes is one excited chocolate lab to defile said new couch. This inheritance is not like that. And it's unfading. I mean, what in this life is not fading? Our bodies are fading. I remember my first new car it was a 2000 Honda Civic. I was so proud driving that thing off the lot, and it took less than a month for someone to hit me, and the, the glory of that new car was never the same. So much in this life promises great glory, and yet it's fading. Paul here says this inheritance, this glorious inheritance is where? In the saints? You see, Paul is, is directing our hearts to the church. Do we see the glorious treasure of Christ in the church? And if so, are we investing our time, our energy, our talents there? That's what God's calling us to. Paul here prays that, that the eyes of our hearts, they would be so united and connected to this inheritance that we would see it's, it's y'all here that will stand one day in heaven and sing holy, holy, holy who will stand in heaven and sing, worthy is the Lamb. Do you long for that day? And Do you live for that day? You see, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 is a great example of the, the economy here that God is, is calling us to. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, listen to what it says about Moses. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now here's the, the key transaction. Listen carefully. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now that is an amazing statement. I mean, you think of the pyramids, the gold, the wealth of Egypt. It was unheard of. And it says that by faith, in considering his inheritance in Christ, in considering his inheritance that God had promised, Moses saw the reproach of his people as a greater treasure than the wealth of Egypt. Oh, that the eyes of our hearts would believe that and live it. Third, third, pray for a heart connection to God's immeasurably great power in Christ. And here Paul spends four verses of this prayer expounding the amazing power of Christ, evident in the resurrection, evident in the ascension where God seats him at the right hand over every ruler, every power, every authority. The duration of this rule, it, it is timeless. Its realm, notice again, is given to the church. Colossians 2, in speaking of these rulers and authorities, of, of Satan and his minions, in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's the gospel. Now listen to what it did. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, God has put these rulers and authorities, these accusers that come against us, to open shame through the cross of Christ. This is the power of God at work. And yet, do we believe it? Is our heart truly connected to God's power by faith? course you're familiar with Romans 1:16, where Paul declares I'm not ashamed of the gospel why for it's the power of God for those who believe in 1st Corinthians he writes for God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but but to those of us who are being saved it is the power of God Brothers and sisters, the gospel, this message of Christ's atoning sacrifice in our place, that he died the death we deserved and that God raised him from the dead to prove it was sufficient, that work is the power of God. Do we believe it? In writing to Timothy, really on his deathbed in a prison cell, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy, and I think it's indicative of our day, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now here's the summation. That's a, quite a list, right? And pretty reflective of a lot of things we experience 
having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's what Paul's praying wouldn't happen. That we wouldn't embrace an external shell of religion, but that we would embrace a relationship with his son and experience his power in our lives. And, and here's the thing, and, and I want to encourage you guys in this. You've, you've got this, this exciting new time with a new pastor coming. Here's when, when we are a people who are praying for this power to be unleashed, what does it look like? I can vividly remember on a plane coming back from South Africa, my, my wife and I were newly married. We had no idea what God had in store. We were really new to what it meant to walk in faith and obedience. And I, I uttered these faithful, uh, fateful, excuse me, fateful words on that plane. My wife's like, what do you think God wants you to do? I said, I know this, it's not preaching. It's not preaching. Now, God has a great sense of humor. And so when we came back, I had prayed, Lord, whatever you bring, I'm not going to say no to. And so a man from our church approached me. He said, hey, Matt, will you go and preach down at the rescue mission? Oh, yes. But you see, here's where a, a prayer that desires to see the power of the gospel lived out takes big risks and says, you know what, even if that doesn't feel natural to me, even if that doesn't feel comfortable to me, I'm willing to step out and do it. And you know what? God, through those times of preaching at the mission, grew in my heart a love for his word and a love to stand and preach and proclaim his word. And you see, that's the power of the gospel. It sets us free from caring what people think of us. It sets us free from doing what's comfortable and easy. It says, God, when you call me to something, I'm willing to step out and do it. Do you pray? Do you pray for God's immeasurably great power to be unleashed in your heart and in your life and through this community of faith, his church. All that you would pray to that end as this new pastor comes. You see, the heart, here's kind of the summary of this section, this prayer. The heart connected to Christ by faith prays expectantly for God's presence and his power to pursue God's will and glory in the church. What role does God have you to play in this community of faith? How does God want you to connect your heart to the hope of your calling? To connect your heart to these amazing riches of his inheritance through adoption? And to connect your heart to his great, immeasurable power? I close with a hymn from Annie Johnson Flint. I believe this this captures the essence of, of Paul's prayer as well. She writes, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. 
His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray.